Good morning. Welcome to Sower Church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the four pastors here at this church. It's an honor to be with you. Today we're looking at the Eighth Commandment. You've probably heard your mom uh, with the Eighth Commandment. You remember your mom. She would say in the second book of Mom, chapter 24, verse 7, Thou shalt not try me. That was another your mom. That was, that was, that was another woman. Um, okay, but today, seriously, we look at the Eighth Commandment. Uh, let's look at it together. The Eighth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 15, it says, You shall not steal. Steal. Okay, so imagine a world where there was no stealing. You wouldn't have to carry these things around. These things are a trophy to our humanity and how we steal from each other. How we steal. We don't trust people. We have to lock up buildings, work, cars, right? These things. Remember these awkward things in your skinny jeans, guys? These awkward things that you have to carry around in your purse that get lost, that are weapons in the parking lot in case things go down, right? Keys? Yeah, that's an idea. You learn things at church. Um, so imagine a world where we didn't have to steal anything. I had a college roommate, Shane, who uh, left his keys in his car. When we got out of the car, he was giving me a ride. I was bumming rides for years. Um, he's from small town Nebraska. We got out of the car. I'm like, well, you left your keys, man. He's like, oh, that's fine. I did it all growing up. And I'm like, well, this isn't, this isn't small town Nebraska. He's like, ah, it's fine. I'm like, what? They didn't steal your car in Madison? And he's like, well, if they did, they'd take it somewhere and bring it back. It's like, oh, that's great. I'm like, this is... I don't know how things work in Omaha, but in Denver, where I grew up, that wouldn't fly. And so Shane hopefully left his keys not in his car this morning. But stealing, it's just imagine a world where that was your reality. You didn't have to have keys to get into your car. You could leave your house unlocked. You could leave the church unlocked. You can leave your work unlocked, and people were trustworthy to not take advantage of each other. Imagine that wonderful world that we don't live in. Amen? All right, so 86% of adults, when surveyed which of the Ten Commandments they're confident they kept, 86% of adults claim that they keep the Eighth Commandment. 86% of people probably might have came this morning thinking, I'm good on this one. I'm going to come on church this week. 86% of adults think they keep the Eighth Commandment. So before we jump into the Eighth Commandment, let's pray. Will you bow your heads with me to close your eyes and try to focus our thoughts and our minds on what God might be doing uh, in your heart this morning? Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these 10 commandments we've been looking at for uh, coming up on 10 weeks here. I, I ask that you would let your work do what your work does. Your word do what your word does, and it do work in our lives. Let the word of God speak, instruct, convict, rebuke, correct, encourage our souls today. I pray to be the Bible and the scripture that in, instructs our souls today. I pray that I'd get out of the way. I pray that we would get out of the way and we would listen so that we might obey what we hear today. We commit this time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we do steal. Theft, thieving, stealing is knitted into the fabric of our society as people. It's what happens as people. So how we steal? There's many not obvious ways that we are engaged in stealing as a society, as a culture. We steal. So let's work through our list here I got for you. Uh, number one is uh, we steal from our employees. We cheat them on pay, we cheat them on benefits, we can be cheap, and we can cheat our employees. So we're like, yeah, my boss. <laughs> I get it. I get it. So we can take advantage of our employees. The other one is we steal from our employer. It should be all of us. We can be lazy. We can steal time. We can do poor work. We can do slack work. We can steal from our employer. All right? All right? Moving along. We can gossip and slander. 
Like, what does that have to do with stealing? You're stealing their reputation. You're stealing their reputation with others. And I have a, I, on this topic, I have, a, I have a dark thought sometimes, and I thought to myself, you know, my obituary as a pastor is going to be written by the most immature Christians in the city of Lincoln. As they gossip and slander about what a great or horrible pastor I was. You get what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know, not, not Christians in Lincoln. Not, so far it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it will happen someday, because I just know who, who humans are. Christians talk. We gossip and slander about people. Leaders, not leaders, friends, family. We gossip and slander and we steal their reputation from them. We steal from the government. Tax evasion. We steal from the government with tax evasion. We steal with fraud and embezzlement. We find out sensitive information and we steal an opportunity that does not belong to us. We steal intellectual property. We steal someone's idea from someone and go behind their back and, ex and engage in theft. We steal from society. We steal from society as a whole by not working and not contributing to society in a productive way. We steal from society as a whole. Last week we looked at this one, but we steal love. With adultery, with fantasy adultery, with porn, you are stealing love from someone in relationships, in time, and commitment that you don't have with people when you engage in adultery and or porn. And also, and finally, we steal from God. We Christians steal from God from lack of tithing and being generous to God and the mission of God. Stealing, I propose to you, is knitted into the, it's just kneaded into the fabric of our society. This culture of theft, of stealing, is just part of who we are. You go to Monday morning and you think, I don't want to get taken advantage of, so I'm going to speed. I don't want to get taken advantage of in this, you know, by this contractor, by this client, by this customer. I don't want to be taken advantage of by people around us. We have lack of trust in other people. So we're always on guard to not be taken advantage of. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? Thou shalt not steal. It's everywhere. It's part of our culture as a society. We live in a culture where theft is normalized. I was encouraged by a pastor. He shared this about Martin Luther. And I think it's a gem and it speaks exactly what we're talking about. Martin Luther says the eighth commandment applies wherever there is taking and giving of money for merchandise and labor. The Eighth Commandment applies whenever there is taking and giving of money for merchandise and labor. Theft, stealing, free market, those things go together. That's part of our society as a fabric. The Eighth Commandment speaks to the very real world where we live in every day. So how do we steal? We're very creative, but we steal in all sorts of ways as people. So why do we steal? Why do we steal? Why do we steal by breaking the moral boundaries to meet your desires and your needs. Why do we steal? I think it's, for, it's driven by a few things. One, it's driven by a lack of character. Your character or someone else's character. They didn't have discipline on their end to do the work. They were lazy in their work ethic. They didn't work wholeheartedly like Jesus was their boss, like God was their boss, who they give an account for. There were lazy employees, slothful employees, sluggard employees. There were the slackers in that group project who cherry-picked all year, then they showed up the final exam, then they smiled and got their A with the rest of the group. They were, they were, they were, they were, there was character deficit. There was lack of character drives stealing. Lack of character among people drives stealing. But it's also driven by a lack of understanding of God's character. The theft and stealing is driven by the hearts, a lack of understanding of God's character. So think about this. Like in kindergarten, when you got that note saying, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe, check a box. Remember that? You wrote that note or you got that note. Let's do that same concept with God. Is God good? 
Yes, no, or maybe. Is God good? So you lack an understanding of God's character. You do not think God is good. You check that no box or you check that maybe box. So it keeps you, it keeps you from trusting in God. If God is good, can God be trusted? Can you be content and trust Jesus for your current situation? A lack of understanding of God's character drives theft. A lack of understanding or lack of trust in God. Can God be trusted? You're basically saying, when you don't trust God, I don't trust you, God. I trust myself more. I don't trust you, God. I trust my significant other more. I don't trust you, God. I trust my bank account more. I don't trust you, God. I trust my youth more. I don't trust you, God. I trust my fancy career more. There's lack of trust we demonstrate to God in many areas of our lives. Failure to trust God and his provision for you is by stealing, is telling God that you do not trust him and that he is a bad provider and doesn't know what's best for you for now. See, life has conditioned you to be careful who you trust. If it's a mechanic, a plumber, a concrete guy, a landscaping person, an engineer, um, the local government, mechanics, lack of trust in people is woven into our society. But it might have stemmed from like a primary relationship when you're a young man, a young woman, a parent or authority figure took advantage of that position of authority and they lost trust in them. Why do we steal? Many ways how we steal. Why do we steal? Lack of character for you. Lack of understanding of character for God and lack of trust in who God is. God's nature, God's character. So what does God want? What does God want from you? So the eighth commandment says, you shall not steal, Exodus 20. And it talks about stealing and theft throughout the whole Bible. You can read about people that stole in the Bible. You can read about people that got away of stuff in the Bible and people that didn't get away of stuff in the Bible and how they stole. And all throughout Proverbs, you see this pattern of this dynamic of stealing is the fabric of you know, free market. You see it in Jeremiah 17, 11. You see it in all these different passages in Proverbs about like merchants and taking advantage of people, customers taking advantage of people. You see this throughout you know, the Levitical law. You see theft and stealing as part of a problem that needs to be addressed by God when he addresses the top 10 biggest problems. But what does God want? You see that stealing pattern all throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. And I didn't make this up. Ephesians 4.28 talks about stealing in the church in Ephesians. In the New Testament church. These are Christians, y'all. Christians. And this is written to the Christian church. In Ephesians 4.28, Let the thief no longer steal. Talking about a group of Christians. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he can share. He has something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. We see stealing and theft throughout the whole Bible. And I just covered all these different various ways that how we steal. But I like to pick one and drill down on one. So I'm not picking government fraud. I'm not picking stealing for your employees or stealing for your employer. I've picked, I've chosen the passage in Malachi, which talks about the grand theft of stealing from God, the ultimate con. And there's this, this conversation happening with the prophet Malachi and the people of God as he addressed robbery of God. In Malachi 3, 8, and 10 is where I'd like to pick up with you, speaking about this heart of what the Bible asks of us. Malachi writes, will a man rob God he asks the question, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And you ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payments of the tenth 
the tithe and the contributions, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing, robbing me. Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Malachi says that we should test God. In what area? In your finances. The opposite of, the opposite of stealing is generosity. It's what all these scholars I read about this last week wrote about. The opposite of, you know, stealing is generosity. Have you ever thought, I'm going to put God to the test in my finances? Has that thought ever gone through your mind? Have I ever put God, I'm going to put God to the test in my finances? I heard a, a quote from Mark Batterson in his gold, and so I'm going to share it every time I talk about money the rest of my life. Uh, he says, he's an author, pastor, he's written some really encouraging books for my soul. He wrote this one passage, this one quote. He said, God can do more with 90% of your income than you can do with 100% of your income. God can do more with 90% of your income than you can do with 100% of your income. So get this, when you give to God, when you test God in your finances, He, God, is required to meet your needs. To meet your needs. Not meet your wants, but meet your needs. So I'm going to illustrate this with Aldi's. Let's pretend you're going to Aldi's because you want to stretch a buck like a good Christian, and you're at Aldi's, and you're checking out, and you look in front, and you're like, oh my goodness, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are buying food for SpaceX and Blue Origin. You're like, that's amazing. Wow. And then after that, you realize that none of them, they aren't taking anyone's Bitcoin, and no one has a wallet, and you're like, ah, oh, they haven't bought, they can't buy their groceries. What would you do? Would you buy them their groceries, or would you stand by and watch them suffer? What would you do? Some of you are like, mm -mm. You, would, you should buy them their groceries. Some of the richest people on the planet at Aldi's cannot buy groceries and you're behind them and you can spot them groceries. You should buy them groceries, right? You want to be in debt to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. You want them to owe you a solid, right? Of course you would buy them groceries, people. Listen to this verse. When my, when my dad shared this growing up in Colorado, I'm like, I don't believe that's in the Bible. And dad's like, it is. And he showed me. And I'm like, oh, that is a good verse. And it's in Psalms 37, verse 25. It says this, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous abandoned or his children begging for bread. I'm like, dad, that's a huge claim. That's a big claim. But think about it. We have a big God. We sing songs too. We pray, we worship, we read about a big God an omnipresent God, an omniscient God, an all-knowing God, an almighty God. That's a big God. He has a better understanding of your financial household than you do. He has a better understanding of your future financial challenges than you will have. It's the God of the universe who we're looking to. Omniscient, almighty, all-knowing God. That's a big God. He's liable for your needs when you're generous to God. So on this, this culture of generosity, talking about generosity, I'm very proud of our church. I'm very proud of what God has been doing in your lives. If you've been around with us for a while, we've done several campaigns. We've had a lot of cool stories of generosity that have happened in our life as a church. Uh, I'd like to talk through our church for a second. I'm, ve I'm very proud of the leaders God has given us. It is wild. All of our pastors are wildly generous givers to this church. They're all in. They have ownership, they have financial buy-in, their time, their talent, and their treasure. They're some very generous givers in our church. They're in the 10% club. I'm just making up stuff. They're in the 10% club and beyond. 
and extra. Does that make sense? I'm incredibly proud of what God has been doing in all the pastors' lives that I'm a part of. I'm just trying to keep up with those guys. They're great men, and they're very generous, and they're very good at giving and generosity. But it, it bleeds beyond just the pastors. I'm incredibly proud of what God has been doing, humbled and sober, what God has been doing with our community group leaders. All those different community group leaders that we have scattered throughout this church, of all those different community groups, they're all generous givers. They're in the 10% club, and they grandly give to Jesus and his mission. I think that's amazing. I'm very proud of what God is doing in the lives and the hearts of the discipleship group leaders. Some of them are in the 10% world. Some are working on it. I mean, our whole church is working on it. I think our church is at 6% giving right now collectively that we're giving to missions and church plans. A couple years ago, we are at 0% giving to missions and church plans. We're going to jump to 9% this next year and get to that magical 10% number and then beyond. Our hope and our heart is to give grandly to Jesus and his mission for world evangelism around the globe and across the state. Think about it. We're in a church... We're in a church, and the archaeologists of this church, uh, it's dreary, so we have the windows open, but you can see the Jerusalem cross, I think, some of you, it's like four, four crosses intertwined. You see it? It's up there. You see it? It's called the Jerusalem cross. It's inspired by Matthew 20 of taking the gospel to the whole known world, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all ethnic group, every nation around this entire globe. We want to grandly give greater and greater year after year to missionaries and church plants around the globe. We have some great partnerships. We, I come up here and I show you a video once a month, and we, this is what we're paying for. This is what we're giving to. And I go back and I do membership each month. We're growing that as a church. We're growing in generosity journey as a collective church, which is exciting in my mind. But I'm proud of what God's doing. Those young community group leaders as they're growing up in this whole discipline, this spiritual way of worshiping God through giving. And I'm proud of our members at this church. They account for 98% of our income as a church comes from members. We're on this generosity journey of growing, and it's thrilling and exciting journey. And we know that God is good and God can be trusted. And he, he can be trusted more for our finances than we can. You're like, Mike, you're boasting. Your left hand, right hand, you shouldn't talk about money, Mike. I'm like, well, yeah. But the Bible says in Matthew, I mean, First Chronicles 29, David, when they're getting money built up to build the temple of God so the people of God could come and worship God, David grandly gave, and he had all the leaders and political leaders and influential clan, uh, tribe leaders of Israel give first, and then report that cumulative number to the whole nation of Israel. Then the whole nation of Israel gave to build the temple where the whole people of God would come and worship God. So that God, the nation of Israel, should have, could have, would have been a light to the nations, to the Gentile nations around this globe. The leaders saw the generosity, the people saw the generosity of the leaders, and they were encouraged by the, the ownership, by the unification, by the humility, by the shared vision of their leaders, and they rallied and ran behind their leaders. Financial ownership among your leaders is a uniting and powerful and healthy thing we want to hold to. So some obvious questions, which feels like a straw man question, but I try not to do. But do you want to be in a church where they don't care about if anyone gives? Where I could stand here in front of you and not have a penny in this thing? Does that make sense? Do you want to be in a church where there's no accountability for pastors or for leaders of the church and like having ownership and buy-in on the vision and mission and values of the church? Do you want to be in a church where people don't have financial skin in the game, where they aren't united and they're giving with the same shared vision? I mean, I would say if there's extremes of you know, leaders in Christianity who have abused and used people in this topic of generosity, of talking too much about money and making it about money and all about money, I would say we're on the other extreme. Rarely do we ever speak about money as a church. 
You could be floating in and out of here for months and never hear the M word, money. Get what I'm saying? We, we, we're more, I'd be more critical of us not speaking about it. But see, the opposite of stealing is generosity, and generosity is one of the big three values we have on the wall as you walked in. Did you notice that? There's a sign that says gospel, community, and generosity. We talk about community groups weekly. We try to do gospel presentations and Christ-centered messages, and we try to do gospel-centered ministry throughout our church. Or people, we want to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We never talk about generosity, hardly. Like most churches have this part where they pass a plate and you, you add money or gifts to the plate, or they have you stand up and come to the front and like do a box, fill a box, and you go and you sit back down as like a closing worship song. It's part of the rhythms of that church family. So if you think of that, we don't hardly do anything except a capital campaign, and then we took we did three years of that, and we took a year off, they did a one-year campaign, and then we've been quiet about money for the most part. I think a more critical of us is not talking about the motivation, the heart, and the reason why I want to give. Because I worship God, because I'm generous, because I believe in the mission. I believe in lives changed for the gospel. I believe in more people have an opportunity to hear about Christ. That's why I give. I give as an act of obedience. I give as an act of devotion. I give as an act of worship. I give as an act of you know, spiritual discipline. I give to change and impact lives. There's so many rich passages in the Bible that talk about the heart behind the why. Not dutifully drudgery giving, but giving as a celebratory part of your life. So stealing is the opposite of generosity. That's why Mike's talking about generosity value, and we're talking about the Eighth Commandment, which is about stealing. A generous believer thinks, how can I leverage what God has given me to not just meet my needs, but also to meet the needs of others? There's many of you that are wired this way. We always love being on the receiving end of grand generosity. And we've always experienced that as a church. So I'll be brief, but we were able to buy this building because of the grand generosity of another church in town that was consolidating three churches to one location. And they sold us this building that was worth $1.2 million for $700,000. And then our 90-some people at the church grandly gave and raised $400,000 to buy this property. And we have this building now because of someone's grand generosity. Remember there's an organ there? You don't remember there's an organ there, but there's an organ here, and we were able to sell that and make $50,000 off of that, which was a wild God story, so we can fix our roof on that side where the Sunday school and the nursery is. And if you fast forward, we had some amazing campaigns to renovate the inside of the building, um, and then we had an opportunity with you know, Shane's work and labor of working with that real estate development company to be able to buy that house over there, that, that house we, we love that's boarded up, that's interesting looking. Um, and that's been an interesting, fun story uh, that we're doing non-pastoral work, Shane and I and others, trying to help get that thing done. You could be praying for Thursday. Thursday, a uh, group of us, I think, will be presenting to uh, a variety of hosts of local government uh, to get our plans blessed, to be able to remove that house and expand our parking lot so more people could come and hear about Jesus and not park in the rocks or park in the street. It's a way to have hospitality outside. When you go to Walmart, you don't have to park up the street and walk. You don't park in a rock lot. You park on something. And so our hope is to be more of a blessing in the neighborhood. And the neighbors, I got, signed, I got emails from most of the neighbors around. They love our plan of what we've been doing. But, our, but that house price went from, like I think, like 125 to 135 is what it was worth. They sold us for $90,000, which is an amazing story of generosity. And then this last week, Tuesday and Wednesday, uh, a friend of ours from Omaha, who's we've known since college, he was an intern for me at a college group I was running for years. Um, he married Hannah, my cousin, um, and he's a dear, generous, godly man. 
his father's and his son's, you know, the glass company, they, they spent several days putting in all new windows in our building. And so, like, not only did they, like, nine, eight, nine years ago, he and I were on scaffolding, took all these windows out and fixed them all so they quit leaking. But then they installed all new windows on our Sunday school and nursery wing of our church. So you should look up at the building when you walk back to your car. There's, there's over $80,000 in new windows installed this last week, and he sold to us for $20,000. Isn't that amazing? Like, I feel like I'm robbing you. You can't rob God. No, you can't. He grandly gave because he loves the Lord. He loves the mission. He loves church. He loves Christianity. It is sobering to be on the grand generosity receiving end of the church. I mean, those windows, like 25,000 square feet, if a gust of wind would hit one side of our building, the other side would pop open because of 25,000 square feet. There's a lot of space. We'd like zip tie windows shut and put rubber bands on windows and screw windows shut because they kept opening up. We're like helping global warming, you know, with all the heat we let out in the winter in this space. They were old windows and like if water would hit this side hard, driving rain from this direction, you'd have, you know, sheets of water on the outside of the windows and sheets of water on the inside of the windows. It was, it was interesting windows we had to our kids area. And so utilities, we spend $12,000 a year in utilities and that adds up. And windows that you can feel a good breeze, strong, you can see daylight through that are like rotted pieces of glass around wood is not smart or good stewards. And thank God for grand generosity. Amen? So what does God require of you? And Dan encouraged us pastors when we go through this passage to look to some catechisms because they really help frame the question in a helpful way. So what does God require of you in the Eighth Commandment? That's the question. And the answer is that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good and that I treat others as I would like them to treat me that I work faithfully so that I might share with those in need. So what does God want from us in this generous life? God wants us to grow in trust because we're confident in Him. God wants us to grow in trust because we're confident in Him. So it's one of our distinct three values. Our three values is generosity culture is one of them. And it's a value we rarely discuss. And it's not just because we're not in the richest neighborhood and it's a practical way. No, it's not. The real reason, the heart behind why we, we lift this up of being generous of your time, your talent, and your treasure is because if God can get a hold of your heart and your generosity, of your time, your talent, and your treasure, God can get a hold of all of you. Think about it. I've been in the membership class now for people say, Mike, I don't want to serve. Just let me write a check. And it's like, it's okay, brother. You can stand in the parking lot. You can hand out some donuts. You can do something. <laughs> hand out donuts to sugary donuts to little kids. It's not that hard. It's good for you to serve with your time. And there's other people that are like, you know, you know, they're incredibly talented men and women. And God's bringing us amazingly talented men and women. And it's like, well, the world pays you well for your talent. Christianity doesn't pay well for your talent. But God grandly rewards you. And if like corporate America is taking all your talent, you need to save and give some of your talent and your gifts to the church, to build up the church to full spiritual maturity. And the other area of your time, I said money, right? Time, talent, money. You know, serving of your time. We require our members to serve their church. Crazy. If they don't want to serve this church, they should go to church where they do want to serve that church. Crazy, I know. But it makes it not better. It doesn't make people lost in Sunday school nursery for decades. You know, it makes like you have a rotation that's I think every two months. That's pretty nice. Just parents of kids and stuff. But, I mean, like we require you to serve your church. Time, talent, treasure. If God gets a hold of that generosity of your time, your talent, and treasure, God gets a hold of all areas of your life. It's the high bar you should aim at when you're desiring to make disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So what are we going to do as a group? And what are you going to do? So starting next week, we are going to add a slow drip into our weekly services. This is pretty normal, especially for like uh, growing healthy churches, communicating the heart and the why behind they give, why they give. Uh, it's like we could do a capital campaign again just to educate everyone for two months or something and then not talk about money that often. But it's like, well, we, should do, we could and should do a simple two, three-minute commercial about the heart of why, you know, how, where, when, you know, but why we give. Looking at different Bible passages, the theology of generosity is rich, and it's amazing to look at. And the, our team has been writing up uh, some really short, good little devotionals. We have, like, John Piper's tool, 50 Reasons, Jesus came to die, which helps we utilize in our communion thoughts. So there's some variety, and we understand the different depth and meaning of what happened on the cross when I take communion. So our understanding of the gospel grows with time. And there's those that teams write up like 50 some reasons why Jesus, not reasons, 50 some reasons why we should be generous. And it talks to the heart and the motivation behind the why. Why we do what we do as people. For worship, for devotion, for you know, obedience, for celebration for sacrifice for faith growing your faith i mean there's amazing reasons in the bible why we want to look at the passage and look at the principle about why we should be growing in generosity as a church and i know it's a loaded topic but i know the bible is loaded with generosity so we're going to look at it amen and i'm excited to look at the motivation of why this matters so a little short little two three minute drip into our rhythms as a community as people so that's what we're going to do Here's like, what should you do? What is God calling you to do? And a pastoral friend uses this in his church for 30 years, and I thought, it'll work for us. And so he has this as a tool they use. If you're not giving anything, maybe give something. That's an idea. If you're not, if you're giving sporadically or infrequently, maybe make it a regular and frequent part of your life. If you give little, maybe increase that percentage. God calls for 10% to be given to his house at this, as a starting point. And we need to grow into that, some of us. Our church is growing into that. Feel generosity and grace to, you know, finances are not that simple for some of us. So it's like, we'll be patient with you. Just, we're all in progress journey. Our church is at 6% giving to missions. So we'll be patient with you. Does that make sense? But if giving 10%, consider even greater generosity like many of us are doing. And if bonus point here, if giving from obligation or duty, give as an act of a willing, sacrificial worship and love. Giving is ultimately about our heart, not our wallet. And that bonus point about the motivation, the heart behind why, we're going to hope to address. And that's two, three-minute, short, concise commercials. So as I start to conclude this, ironically, this sin of stealing is how I became a Christian, how I placed my trust in the goodness and the grace of God. I was a nine, almost 10-year-old boy out in Colorado, and... Uh, we, I was hanging at my friend's house, Lyle, and Lyle and I were hanging out, and he said, Mike, I have an idea. Let's go to the Mrs. Winter's house in her barn. She has a whole wall of eggs in her chicken coop. Let's steal an egg. And I'm like, that's wrong, I think. I wasn't a Christian yet. My family, like, hit me with the gospel, my mom and dad, multiple times, and I was the pagan that wasn't getting saved. All my other siblings were getting saved, and it's like, what's with this son of ours? My dad's a pastor, so it's like, what are we doing? This boy's almost 10, you know, and he's... He needs to become a Christian. And I'm like, I think this is wrong. I'm kind of a terror in Sunday school. And I know I think this is wrong. He's like, come on, come on, you go first. I'm like, ah, I went in there, I took one egg, like a legalistic pre-Christian. I'm like, I think this is wrong, but I just took one. Here's one egg. And I gave it to him. He's like, all right, great. He set it on the ground. And he's like, I'll be right back. He crawls over this fence that's taller than that TV. He crawls over this, you know, horse stallion fence thing that I went over into the barn. And he came out with a t-shirt full of eggs. Like if he 
he did this. And it was, he had those long t-shirts, because it was, it was back when those were cooler. It was a lot of eggs. And he came over that fence without breaking any, which is a miracle in itself. He got to the end of the fence. As soon as his feet hit the ground, I heard that screen door smack open. Mrs. Winter, she was very old. She, that was her last name. She was very, she, she deserved to be cold with us because we were uh, stealing from her. And this was before egg prices went up. But still, stealing is stealing. She kicked that window open, I mean that screen door open, and she screamed at us like she should. You know, she's like, Lyle, she said his last name. <laughs> I know you. Come here right now. Are you stealing my eggs again? And he had to dump her eggs into her apron. And then she turned and she's like, and you, I know you. I'm calling your parents. And I'm like, crap. I live two houses away from her in the acreage. Our parents said. So I went home. I changed my clothes. I'm like, they don't. She don't know me. I got seven siblings. I'm going to change my clothes and get away with this. Anyway, so then that phone call rang, and it was my mom looking at me. And she's like, mm, hush. And she's like, what? <laughs> He did, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so apologetic. Mm -mm. And, and so it was that interaction. And then we hung up, and Mom was so mad at me. And she's like, no, 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 you're done. We're talking about this when your dad gets home. I'm like, I am dead. My siblings heard that. I knew I was dead. Everyone was dead. I had like four hours till Dad was going to get home. And I'm like, ah, life is over. I went outside. My siblings said goodbye to me. It was, it was, uh, it was like some of the longest four hours of my life because I got caught stealing. I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyways. I got caught stealing. And so when, I, so when Dad came home, he came home, went inside. Mom like had us all outside at the time because there was a lot of us. And she's like, I can't handle you know, seven siblings. There's a lot of kids. Some were in high school. But it was a lot of kids. So she had us outside in the afternoons. It was crazy. Called child services on her. That's fine. But, but when Dad came, he's like, come on, Mike. And so we went down to the basement, me and uh, Mom and Dad. And I tried everything. I tried playing dumb. I tried manipulating them, I tried charming them, I tried uh, spinning it, I tried selling it, I tried, you know, everything I could think of as a nine, almost ten-year-old boy. I'm like, ah, I'm done. And then they talked about, they pulled out a little gospel booklet, which we have a bunch on the lobby, I think. A little gospel booklet explains, you know, how you can know for certain. And it went through God and God's character. And God is trustworthy. And that God is good. And it went through the gospel. So a little ten-year-old boy's head. I'm like, ah, I'm out of, I'm at my rope's end. I'm nothing else I can do. I'm out of options. I'm guilty of the sin of stealing and other things my parents don't know about. You know, and I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna yield to God. As a ten-year-old little kid, so this is what got me stealing and getting caught in my thief, my thieving, my my larceny of eggs caught me as a kid. But it's what caught my whole heart and put my life on a different trajectory. Is this whole world of breaking the eighth commandment? But God's grace was there for me. Because we have a little more time, I'm going to share another story of God's grace on stealing again. Later in college, I was uh, leading a small group in our, in our college group. And uh, I was driving back from some conference. And I was in a car with like four guys. But I was their small group leader, community group leader, whatever, Bible study leader. And like Hannah's brother was one of them. And we're driving through uh, a city. And we, you know, we saw this street sign. And we're like, that's a cool street sign. And our whole dorm had a bunch of street signs on it because was, this was this issue in my life back in college. And I was like, yeah, let, yeah, we need to steal it. And so we stopped, and I sent my little small group member out there to steal the street sign, and he couldn't do it. So I had to go out there and show him how to do it. And I helped him <laughs> rip the street sign off the street thing. And we threw it in the back of the car, drove to church. And then uh, one of our pastors, Gary, was preaching on something, and he went on a tangent on stealing. He had no idea why. But he went on a tangent. I think it probably applied to the pastor somehow. But he talked about stealing. I'm like, oh my goodness, just preach on it. It was a night service, a Saturday night service. I'm like, I just stole 
couple hours ago. And four of my small group members just saw me steal. And I'm a leader at this college group. And I'm a bad leader. And so some of you are like, you scum. I know that. But so I got convicted. And I drove back to Ogden, Iowa. Omaha to Ogden, Iowa is a couple hour drive. And I'm speeding at the time. I'm breaking the laws at the time. And I'm speeding in a car that's not painted the right color. I was going to paint it. And I realized how much it cost to paint the car I was driving. Um, and I was like, I can't afford that. And so I didn't change it when I licensed it because I was lying, which is next week. Anyways, um, and then the officer, Elliot, went by this way, and he pulled me over. And he's like, son, young man? I'm like, yes, sir. He's like, listen, I clocked you going, I don't remember, way over. Um, it was Iowa, middle of the night. <laughs> I was returning the street side. He's like, you have a tail light out. And I clocked you at you know, X amount over. Your car's painted the wrong thing. And I see a street light at the back of your car. I'm like, yeah, you got me. I, I don't, I'm wrong. Uh, this is wrong. This is all wrong. I, wrong, 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 all around wrong. I, I was at church, Saturday night service, and this pastor was saying, stealing, I was returning the sign. He's like, well, you got a lot going on here. And I'm like, yep. I'm like, I'm totally in trouble. And at this time, I had multiple speeding tickets at my life. Um, and so he, he said, his name was Elliot, his last name. He's like, I, listen, listen, listen. I went back to his car, came back. I'm like, I'm going to get the biggest ticket ever. And he came back. He's like, listen, I meet with the guy at that local county city around midnight or one in the morning-ish when you have a break to have a cup of coffee and we're friends. Let me, uh, let me talk to him and I'll carry the sign the rest of the way for you. I'll give you a warning. It was the first warning of my life. And so I'm like, that's crazy. And so I drove back the speed limit, felt convicted by the grace officer Elliot gave me and I've been attempting not to speed since. But that's not the end of the story, which was in what I thought. And I went to, I went to college and then the girl that we all were kind of hitting on, I think, probably, who had their local high school street sign. She came into our dorm room one day, and she start, waved her finger. She's like, Mike, you guys are in so much trouble. And I'm like, what? She's like, my mom's a secretary at that school. And they had footage of you guys stealing that sign. And they had the local police there pressing charges because it was your car. And then this cop came in because, you know, he said, hey, I meant to talk to you last night about this. I didn't, you didn't have time to meet coffee with us. Listen, seemed like a good kid. Here's the sign back. I clocked him here and this, there, you know, explain that. And they decided to let it go. There would have been an extra issue coming my way. And I'm like, oh my goodness. When, you, when you're a thief and you steal and you experience the grace of God for the first time, it haunts you in a good way more than any generosity can haunt you. It's like, I owe God everything. And not just that we grandly get amazing, generous windows. God grandly gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us. Pay the ultimate price we can never pay. The debt when we're fully and deeply and saturated, committed sins. And it's private and public life on high def TV in the, the halls of heaven. Everyone in heaven knows we're guilty. But God came and his son Jesus Christ came and said, hey, we're going to give this one grace. They hope they trust me. They think I'm good. They ask for forgiveness. That's the gospel in a bad an illustration nutshell at the end of a sermon, men and women. In our Sunday school upstairs, a teacher was doing Sunday school, and one of our kids, they asked about Bible reading. And one of our kids said, I read one chapter a day. And another kid said, I read two chapters a day. And another one of our kids said, I read three chapters a day. And then one of your sweet kids said, I, I, I obey what I read. That hurts. Anyways, we as Christians, wanna, we, it's not a, the hard part is not understanding what this passage means. Thou shalt not steal. The hard part is obeying what we know. Life has conditioned you to be careful about who you trust. 
for a variety of reasons, because we're a broken and fallen world of untrustworthy, broken people and institutions that have broken your trust. And they're not all good. God is the only trustworthy thing in this life. God is the only trustworthy relationship in this life. God is the only trustworthy person in this life. So how do you trust? Trust isn't a feeling. It's not an emotion we conjure up. Trust is a decision of the mind, an act of the will. You decide to trust. Your decision of the mind, not the heart. The mind, the actions, and the heart are on a ride. And either your feelings are leading your whole actions in your mind, or your mind is leading your actions, which are leading your feelings. This whole concept of trust and theft and generosity and is God good and can I trust God all boils down to a decision of the mind. The actions and the feelings follow. You all sat down in a chair and none of you looked at the structural integrity of that chair before you sat down. You just trusted the, the chair manufacturers. You trusted us that we would have pulled out a broken chair. You, have dis, dis, you showed trust in driving rules. You showed trust in your car. You showed trust in all sorts of institutions. Is God good and can that God be trustworthy? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the Eighth Commandment. I thank you for... Uh, you challenge us to be generous, not thieves. Thieves, Lord, I pray that we would all be grandly giving of our life, our time, our talent, and our treasure to you. Because you gave more than anything we could ever give, God. We love you. We commit our lives to you and our day to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.